Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. We're studying the Psalms of Ascent. I've said it every week, so I won't go into a long um, rehash of it, but the Psalms of Ascent are travel songs for God's people. It's Psalm 120 to 134, and these songs are filled with the themes of God's kingdom. There's God's faithfulness. There's God's uh, instructions. There's edification. There's invitations for us to participate in the joy that he offers with his people. And these songs that were originally for the Hebrew people traveling to Jerusalem three times a year have now become our travel songs. As we travel along through life on our way to the Lord, these are the songs that remind us of the themes that are most important to us. We like replacing the themes that God tells us are important with our own personal themes. We get caught up in building our own little things and we get sidetracked by themes that are not important, but the Bible redirects us and says, I know that you think that controlling this thing is important, but I wanna invite you to this other side of considering that surrendering might actually be more important than controlling this thing. I wanna remind you that being humble is better than being proud. That rejoicing is better than walking around in sorrow. And that when you do have tears, you have a place you can bring them to. So that's the themes of the Psalms of Ascent. So, so far our journey from Psalm 120 up to 125, we've left our homeland, which the parallel in the Christian life Uh, The Hebrew is actually leaving his home and heading toward Jerusalem. The parallel is it's a theme of repentance. This idea of leaving something and turning towards God and his ways. That's what was captured in the first couple Psalms, Psalm 120 and 121. And then we talked about this theme of soaking in God's faithfulness and his handiwork on the journey. Everywhere we look as we're traveling along in our life, we're capturing, we're just getting these little snapshots of his faithfulness. We're surrounded by these mountains. We're captured by this city that, that is filled with his value system and, and justice and righteousness. And we walk through the gates and we're just overwhelmed at all the little things that God is establishing. And that cultivates inside of us a a desire to pray. And so the parallel there is as we turn from repentance, we go to reading God's word. And then that kind of moves into this lifestyle of prayer. Lord, I, I see you working everywhere around me. I want you to start working in me. And then once you pray that prayer, you start becoming more aware of the things he's already doing in you. Lord, change me. Oh, wait, you've already started. You started changing me the day I left home. You've been changing me the entire journey. Before I even arrived, you're changing and you're transforming me. And so this attitude of prayer turns into an attitude of gratitude. And that's where we are today. We ended in Psalm 125 last week. We finished with this heart of gratitude. God is doing a lot on behalf of his people. Everywhere you look, you can see his fingerprints. 
And that is cultivating inside of us this thankfulness and gratitude that brings us into our journey to, journey to today. So this is what I'm gonna do. I wanna make today just as clear as I possibly can so that as you're tracking along, you can kind of see where we're headed because the themes in Psalm 126 and 127, although what they're talking about may seem a little disconnected, the theme is tracking because they're all the Psalms of Ascent and they're building on one another. So we left home, we're studying God's word, we're praying, we're becoming more aware of his faithfulness and we're cultivating this attitude of gratitude, we're so thankful for him. And this gratitude is gonna turn into expectation. So we left Psalm 125, we're getting into 126 and we're starting today with the posture of gratitude. The psalmist is saying, I am so thankful for all the things the Lord has done. I know what they are. I can look back at my history and I can tell what he's done in my individual life. I can tell what he's done in the life of his people. I can see it all through scripture. I know what God is up to and I am thankful because he's always up to something. And that gratitude is going to today turn into expectation in the psalmist's heart. I'm so grateful for what you've been doing. Oh man, I can't even imagine what you're gonna do next. I'm so thankful for what you've been up to. I can't even, I, I don't even have the words to describe what you're probably gonna do next. And that expectation then turns into joy. All right, so this is the, this is the track today. We start with gratitude. Gratitude grows into expectation. Expectation turns into joy. I'm so excited about what the Lord's gonna do, I can't stop smiling. I don't have any external circumstances to, to, to show me that things are about to change, but I can't shake this feeling that something is about to change. Something is, a, something, I, I don't, I can't, I can't describe it, but I can just feel it in my bones because I know what he has done in the past. I know his track record. Something's about to shift. I don't know what it is, but it gets me really excited. And I'm, and I'm overflowing with joy. And that takes us to the last transition where we'll end up today, and that is participation. I'm so excited about what you're about to do, I wanna get my hands on the plow and start turning up some soil. You follow? So we go from gratitude to expectation, from expectation to joy, and from joy to participation. That's where we're headed today. Are you ready? Good, let's go to Psalm 126. Now what I'm gonna to do today is I'm gonna read through the whole Psalm, and then we're gonna go back up and we're just gonna slice through it. We're gonna pull out the, um, the, the imagery that the psalmist is using to describe these things because uh, we talked about how um, psalms is all poetry and so there's these metaphors and these comparisons and these word pictures and there's these foreshadows and there's words that describe one thing but we take that concept to describe something else and so uh, we're going to read through it first and then we're going to go back and we're going to break it apart so let's go to verse one it says when the lord restored the fortunes of Zion. We were like those who dream. Now your translation may say, when the Lord restored the captive ones of Zion or redeemed or brought back the captive ones of Zion. That is a reference to one of two major events, probably written in a way to reference both of them. The Exodus story, 
The captive ones of Zion were, were in bondage in Egypt. The captive ones were also in bondage in Babylon. There's a good possibility this was written after the Babylonian captivity when they came back, when they got the news, hey, you're set free. But it could have also been written pre-exile and just describing the feelings of the people of Israel when God said, you're free from Egypt. But there were two monumental moments when they were set free, and the psalmist is recapturing the attitude of the people when those things happened. Man, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. And there's this weird pivot, verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. The Negev's a desert. Now that's weird, huh? We start off being grateful. Man, do you guys remember what it was like when the Lord set you free when you first got saved? We were like those who dream. This is a dream. This is, my sins are washed away. I now have eternal life. There was songs just flowing out of my mouth. I, I, I was filled with laughter, our tongues, shouts of joy. Man, the Lord is doing great things. But then in verse 4, restore our fortunes. Well, what happened? I thought he had already restored your fortunes. Why are you praying for this again? Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Okay, now let's break this down. Let's go to verses 1 and 2 first, because the song starts with a memory. Do you guys remember what it was like to leave Babylon or Egypt? It was like a dream. It was like one morning we were slaves, and then that afternoon we were free people. Like I woke up one way, and then I went to bed a different way. I went to bed, I woke up in one bed, and I woke up in a different bed. My my entire life was changed in one afternoon. It was, it was so wild, we just started laughing. We couldn't control our joy. There was a moment in time where God set, our, set us free, and we really understood what it was like to be free. It was transformative. It was amazing. Our mouths were filled with laughter and shouting. And that past event was like, a monument. It, it was so profound that it affected our attitude today. So verse 1 and 2 starts off with this remembering of what God has done. And then verse 3, it talks about how monumental that moment was and how that moment affects our current attitude. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. So for tracking what the psalmist is saying, he's saying there was a moment where things changed and that moment was so profound, even though it was 20 years ago, it is still affecting our attitude today. God's past faithfulness 
informs and shapes and dictates our current attitude. That's what he's saying. The way I think about my life right now is because of something that he did in the past. But, as we all know as human beings, just because we experienced that sense of freedom one time doesn't mean that we won't experience times of drought in the future. And so what the psalmist is saying is that there was this moment where you got saved and your life transformed and it it determines how you're supposed to be thinking about your life right now. I am filled with joy. I am grateful. I am filled with gratitude because the Lord has done these great things in my life. But also there is something else that's true and it is that my life feels like a desert right now. I'm God's people. He loves me. Man, everywhere I look, it's just dry. When I, when I pray, it just feels like my throat is dry. When I try to read the Bible, it's, it's like there's this, it, it, it just feels like there's like one of those old westerns where it's like a sagebrush is just like rolling across. I, and, I, and I listen to other guys talk about reading the Bible and it's like, man, I don't know where you got that from. And I'm trying to, it's like, I don't know where to start. And, and when I do start, it's nothing. But I do remember a time when like, when there really was nothing and he called me out. Like I remember being a slave in the desert to sin. And then all of a sudden he calls my name. And then one morning I woke up in one bed as a slave. And the next night, that night, I, like I went to bed like in the king's palace as a, as a, a child of the king. Like, I remember when that happened. He was faithful in that situation, but like right now, things are not good. I spend most of my days crying. I'm overwhelmed with emotion. I love God and He loves me, but I don't like my current life. Is this resonating with anybody? I'm not happy right now. So what do you do in desert times? If you're one who loves God and he loves you and you got saved and you can even remember how good it was, but you're living in that weird in-between place where it's just like, you know, you're like, hmm. Things seem to be going really well with everyone else's life except mine. I haven't seen rain in a long time. What do you do in that desert season when you're, when all you do is just cry? Well, the psalmist gives you the answer. And that's in verses five and six. He invites you to turn your gratitude for his faithfulness, the things that you know he has done in the past, into expectation that the Lord will do it again. Now watch how he describes this with metaphor. He says, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes uh, weeping, bearing the seed for sowing shall come home. He's saying, let the tears that are streaming down your face in that desert season, go ahead and let them fall into the ground of God's faithfulness. Go ahead and weep into his arms. 
Imagine God's word like soil that is ready to receive those tears because in his soil, those tears aren't just salty water. Those tears are seeds. And what he says is, come to me and weep. Bring that dry season to me. Now, maybe you got to that season because of sin. Maybe you got to that season because something was done to you out of your control. But it doesn't matter how you got to that season. The only thing that matters is what you do when you're in that season. And the psalmist says, here's what you do in desert times. You look back on God's faithfulness and you use that gratitude of what he has done as leverage and a springboard into what he's about to do. You start letting those tears turn into expectation because he says the moment you start crying and weeping and bringing that sorrow and all that dry desert land before the Lord, what he's going to do is he's going to use those tears as seeds and what's going to sprout up? Sheaves of joy. Now, none of this makes sense especially to the world, but even to some people of God. How does my sorrow get turned into joy? Well, here's the thing about seeds. Once you put it in the ground, it's hands off. You're not involved in it anymore. The sun does its thing, the rain does its thing, the soil does its thing, and the next part that you play in it is to reap the harvest. Once you plant the seed, you step back and you let God's stuff, <clears throat> excuse me, God's stuff and his ways do, what is happening? <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> you step back and you let God's ways happen beneath the soil. So how does that happen? Not important. How he does it out of your responsibility, that's, like, that's not on your resume, that's on his resume. How it works doesn't need to make sense. All we need to know is that when you take his, his ways and you bring gratitude, when you let that stuff get deep into the soil, when you start to weep over that soil and it starts getting into the ground, this is the promise that the word of God gives you, that when you bring your sorrow and your tears, you're going to leave that place of prayer with joy and laughter, just like you did the first time when he saved you. Now, for those of us who aren't in a desert, it's like, well, I mean, I, I guess that's good news, but for some of you who are in it right now, you're like, God, that's the cold drink of water. I need it. And the psalmist knows that, and that's why this is included in the Psalms of Ascent. Because not every single person is a weary traveler. Some of us in here aren't weary at all. Like, man, I'm, I'm in a good mood. I wouldn't describe my life as a desert right now. Things are great. But we got to bear with one another, and just because your life is great right now doesn't mean that your brother or your sister's life is great right now. And so what do we do for one another? We remind one another, hey, listen, it's okay to cry. Just make sure those tears are falling in the right soil. Because what you could do is you can cry into the enemy's arms. And, and he can turn those tears into anxiety and fear. But that's not what the word is promising us. He doesn't want you running to bad soil. He wants you running to good soil because if the tears are going to stream down, you have a promise that if you go to the right place, it's going to reap joy. And so 
the good news for weary travelers is that when you look back on his faithfulness, when you bring those tears to the Lord, you can cultivate that expectation and that expectation starts turning into joy. And that's where we get into 127. So let's go over to 127. One twenty-seven, verse 1. It says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. That word vain is a Hebrew word that means worthless. So unless the Lord builds the house, it's worthless to even build it. Unless the Lord watches over the city, The watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. And blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Okay. That doesn't make any sense. Maybe I'm the only one who thinks that, but if I'm just tracking with what's happening here, I do not understand how three through five connects to one and two. What does children have to do with building a house and laboring in vain and the watchman watching over the city? What do these things have to do? How are they connected? Well, let's stand back for a moment and track with what the psalmist is trying to get us to understand. We have moved from gratitude, God's regular faithfulness, into expectation that man, if he did it once, he can do it again. There was a time when I was lost and he found me. Therefore, there is a time now in the desert where if I shed my tears before him, I'm promised I'll reap joy. So my expectation actually turns into joy. I go from gratitude to expectation and from expectation to joy. And then I get up, I'm I'm promised in 126 that I'm gonna come home with shouts of joy, bringing in his sheaves with him, okay? This, This concept that I went out with nothing and I came back with a full load and that load is joy. Now we get into 127, and the psalmist is trying to get us to consider, what are you going to do with that joy? Okay, great. You're no longer weeping. The tears are wiped away, and he has exchanged your tears for joy. But what are you going to do with that joy? What is that joy going to overflow into? And the psalmist says that joy needs to overflow into participation into his kingdom. And that's how these things are connected. He talks about building a home. He talks about the watchman, which is symbolic of the work of God's people. And then he talks about children. He's talking about the relationship dynamics of people inside the home. And so what I see the psalmist doing here is in a very beautiful poetic way, he's walking us through this journey, this ascent where he says, look, how do you, how do you recapture the fire of when you first once got saved? I mean, 
Does that resonate with anybody? The idea that, I mean, I, I remember what it was like when I first got saved. I mean, it, it, was, it was really good. And it, I mean, it, I remember like when he first changed my life. And now you know, the cares of the world are kind of weighing on me. And, and yeah, I mean, my life doesn't really look like a desert, but I mean, it's a little bit dry. How do you recapture that joy that once happened when you first got saved? What, what's, what's, what is the steps for that? Psalmist is saying, I want you to take the gratitude of his faithfulness. He always does it. I want you to apply that your current situation. He will do it again. That expectation builds joy in your heart. And now everywhere you look, you're overwhelmed with joy. And now you want that joy to be directed at something. Where do you direct that joy at? Direct that joy into your homes. Direct that joy into the workplace. Direct that joy into your children. Start participating in the work of God building in these areas. But he does it in a very creative way. What he says is, if you're building without this, it's worthless. That joy that comes from God's presence, from being with him, if you're not doing these things, with him doing them through you, you might as well not do them. So let's break this down. Let's go to verse one and two. The psalmist leverages the joy from the previous chapter, 126. He says, God is so faithful and so good. I'm filled with joy. This joy needs to be directed into something. What is it directed into? It's directed into building God's projects. I'm so excited that God has always done it, that he is doing it, that he's doing it in me, with, within me right now. I'm overjoyed at his presence. I want, to, I want it directed at something. What are you up to, God? I want to be a part of that. So now the question is, well, what is God up to? What is God doing? Where do we direct that joy? Well, God is doing what he has always done. He is building a people that will steward his message. And his message is, nations, repent and come to me. Listen, God is not in the business of making you wealthy. God is not in the business of giving you Kids, God is not in the business of, of making your life the most prosperous, best life you could possibly imagine. God's in the business of one thing, and that is seeking and saving. But how does he seek and save? How does he do that work? He does it through his people. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about the people of God who are filled with joy, looking for some place to direct that joy. And we say, God, what are you up to? What are you building? I wanna do that. And we see that what, well, God's building what he's always been building. He's building a people unto himself that then become the ones who carry his message to the nations. So how, how is all of this connected? It's connected because the personal life, the homes, the work life of every believer is supposed to reflect that message of God. And the psalmist is saying, if your life, if what you're building, if the work that you're doing isn't reflecting that message or that value system, then it's not even worth doing.
This is complex and it's easy at the same time. Because what this means is that everything you do, if you aren't doing it for the sole purpose of the fame of his name, you might as well not even do it. And this isn't just the big stuff that he's talking about here, building a home, working, rising up early, the toil that you spend, the the stuff that you do in your daily life. He's talking about, this is a blanket that covers every area of your life. If your work isn't done so that the fame of Jesus' kingdom can be spread to the ends of the earth, it's not even worth doing your work. If you're not getting married for the purpose of making much of Jesus and letting your marriage be a city on a hill to those around you of what Christ and his church looks like, then you might as well not even get married. You see how complex and easy this is? It means that everything we do has one message and it's the fame of Jesus. It is the calling of the nations to repentance but it affects everything. If you're not going to the gym for the sole purpose of making your body healthy so that you can live a longer life and affect more people, then you might as well not even go to the gym. I just gave most of you a pass to like not go to the gym. <laughs> God, finally. But no, think about this. This affects everything. If the way that you order your calendar and your day, the way that you spend your money, If the way that you vote isn't for the purpose of making much of Jesus and magnifying his name and spreading the values of his kingdom to the four corners of the earth, you might as well not even vote. Ooh, that got heavy for a minute, didn't it? Because what we're talking about is doing life in a worthless way, a vain way. And how do we get here? It started because we were over here in the corner thinking about what it used to be. We started thinking about the good old days and weeping because they're not here currently. But the psalmist says, quit doing that. Look back at his, faithful, his faithfulness and apply that to your current situation and let those tears run down into the good soil of his kingdom and they're gonna sprout up joy and you're gonna, you're gonna realize that if he did it once, he can do it again and he can do it right now in your life. So get up off your knees, wipe those tears away and get to work. But what is the work? The work is making much of Jesus in every corner of your life. And if you don't, if there's something that you're doing for personal gain, it's worthless, it will amount to nothing, and it will eventually be thrown on some hill that will be burned at the end of the age. But here's the wild thing. Verses three through five pivot to children. Because what the Lord is saying is that he wants that he, he, want his, he wants his people to be a, a people that represent his value system and his message in all corners of their life, and that includes your work and your home life. But parents, that absolutely includes your children. This is going to sting just a little bit for some of you. For some of you, you're just going to be like, "Amen, good." 
But for those of us who have raised children in this culture and have been subtly influenced by doctors writing books about how to parent that contradict the way the Word of God tells us to parent, it might sting just a little bit. Because the truth is that you can't raise your kids any way you want to. They aren't your kids. They're His kids. Humanity belongs to Yahweh. He is the God of all creation. You are nothing more than stewards of his property. You're like, no, no, not not my little baby. Not my precious child. They're mine. No. Thinking like that is worthless. It's vanity. You're cutting the legs out from under this kid when he grows up and the Lord calls his name. He's going to have to unlearn more things than if you just surrender your heart to Jesus and let your home reflect his value system. Don't raise your kid in a way where that if if they leave, they're going to have to unlearn gospel things that they thought they learned in church that aren't actually in the Bible. They were in some parenting book that you picked up. Look, I'm not against parenting books but I'm against people who seek answers outside of this first. There is truth and wisdom rooted in God's ways, but the problem is that we don't really like his ways. So rather than go through the tough thing, we're finding ways around it, and it always puts us in a bad spot. Sometimes we end up in a desert. And so you look around, you're like, man, my kids... Now, the other part of this, I, I, I do need to, make, I need to make this little side note here. Children are human beings. And they come, there, there comes a point where they have to make a choice for themselves. And you can do all you possibly can to faithfully point their toes in the direction of Jesus, but there comes a time in their life where they're going to have to make a, decide, a decision where their allegiance lies. And you can do everything right, but their heart can still be captured by this world. And there comes a point where that is not on you anymore. Hear me, because some of you got older children, adult children, and they don't want to serve the Lord. And you're like, man, is it my fault? Look, truth is, some of it maybe, maybe it was some of your fault. But the Lord covers that, and he's really good at redeeming that. And you need to let yourself off of the hook and quit living like something that you did in the past is now affecting their future because they are grown people who now have to make a decision about what they think about Jesus. But while the children are under your home, it is your responsibility to create healthy boundaries, to not aggravate them, not drive them to anger, but to love them to create healthy boundaries where they understand the difference between yes and no, and they regularly hear no. This creates a culture in the lives and the homes of God's people so that as children grow up, God's ways outlive you. That's why the psalmist says, that children are a heritage from the Lord because children have a way of continuing this message long after you're gone. 
This is also why the psalmist is not put to shame when he meets his enemy at the gate. Because if the enemy threatens, I'm here to take you out. I'm gonna kill you. The response is, that's fine. Because the legacy of my God will outlast me. If you do take my life, you can't stop the spreading of the fame of his name. I'm not afraid of what the enemy can do to me because I've already sowed into good soil and my kids will outlast me and their kids will teach these values to them and my grandchildren will outlast me and I will have a heritage of people in this family treasuring Jesus above anything else in this world. That's the dynamic that the psalmist is trying to get us to consider, that God's mission outlives us because he's always at work in the next generation. So, this song is inviting us to consider our motivation for things like work, the way we live, but also raising a family. If your motivation isn't him, if your motivation isn't building his kingdom through you, then it's worthless. It's not even worth doing. Now, there's something else I want to cover just briefly here. It's interesting the way the Lord orchestrates and works. I had planned, um, I planned my messages a year in advance. Around November, December, December of every year, I orchestrate and lay out sermons throughout the year. And I had no intention of orchestrating Psalm 127 landing on the Sunday after a monumental Supreme Court decision about the value of human life. But God knows what he's doing, and I've learned to just trust him. So while we're all consciously thinking about the treasure that is children, and we're thinking about parenting. I realize that not everybody is in, in here is a parent. Some of you, you don't have kids. Some of you, um, you haven't had kids. You won't have kids. Some of you, your kids are grown. But there are some of you in here who do have young children now. And you're in that phase of life where you're just like, man, I'm looking for wisdom. Throw it my way. And I've had people stop me in the hallway and ask me, like, you know, you're a parent, you've raised some kids, your oldest is 18 now, like they're going through that teenage phase, so you finished like the, the children education, like the, the young elementary school kind of phase. Like what, what is, do you have any wisdom for me? Well, the first thing I always say is like, man, look in the book, it's got all the wisdom that you need. But there is one thing that I say regularly and I think it's important for us to mention right now. Raising the next generation is some of the most difficult work that you will ever do in your entire life. Parenting is the work of faith. Because you spend your entire, you spend 18 years sowing seed and just hoping that it's gonna take root. And you don't get to see whether it did until they leave your home. It is tough work. It is faith-filled work because you don't know what's going to happen. You just have to believe, God, I'm going to do what you told me to do. And then I, 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 I'm not, I don't have any rights over their heart when they grow up and they, they, they leave and cleave and start their own family. So, Lord, it, I just got to do it by faith. 
So what's, what, if I had to sum up, like, what is the wisdom that I could share with some of you who are raising young kids right now? This is the one piece of advice that I always go back to. Model in your home what you want to see in your kids. That's it. This is what our Heavenly Father did for us, okay? He said, I want a people who are going to steward my message, but I want to show them what it looks like for a person to steward my message, so I'm going to send them Jesus. I'm not just going to say, here's a bunch of things, figure it out. I'm going to send you a man who is going to personify all these values. He is going to be the embodiment of my entire kingdom. He's going to be the true Israel, and everything he does is going to be the personification of wisdom and love and compassion and also judgment and war. And so there's going to be no question for any person after this man raises from the dead to sit back and say, well, I don't, I don't know what that looks like in human form. Jesus said to his children, I'm going to send you a model. Jesus, right before he is arrested, he gets down on his feet and he washes the disciples' feet. Why did he do that? Because he's trying to model for them what leadership looks like. I don't want you lording it over like the kings of this world. I want you on your knees washing each other's feet. If the God of the universe can wash your feet, then who are you to think that you can't wash somebody else's feet? He modeled for the entire world what is expected in his kingdom. And the best piece of parenting advice I can give you is to model in your homes what you want to see in your kids. Now that's easy, it's quick, you write it down, like, oh, that's cute, star it, done. But it's, when, when, it comes to time, when it comes time to actually start practicing, this is where it's difficult. Listen to me, if you want your kids to talk to you, you have to talk to them. Like, oh, but you don't understand, I do, and all they do is just look at their phones. If you don't want them looking at their phones all the time, then stop looking at your phone all the time. I told you it wasn't going to be easy. If you want your kids to talk at the dinner table, then you've got to have a dinner table. If you don't want them looking at their phones during the dinner table, then you have to set up a parameter that at this table there are no screens. And that means you have to leave your phone in the other room. If you want your kids to value wholeness and goodness, then you have to value wholeness and goodness. You've got to talk about it. You've got to, you've got to sing about it. You've got to, you've got to parrot it constantly. You can't expect your kids to pick up and start doing something that you are not modeling for them. If you want a kid who's thankful and grateful, then you've got to show them what it looks like to be thankful and grateful. But if you walk around complaining, if you, if you walk around living with a lack of faith, then you're going to model that this is what's normal in our home and they're gonna struggle with anxiety and they're gonna struggle with knowing what faith actually looks like because they don't know. No one taught it to them. And here's the danger. There is a whole world out there with hours of instructional video on how to do it the other way. And if you outsource your responsibility as a parent to somebody else, the church or the school, 
you'll remove your right to be actually speak truth into your kid because they're too busy seeking it somewhere else. You gotta set up boundaries for your children, but you can't set up boundaries for your children unless they understand that you have boundaries for yourself. Do you want your kids reading the word? Then they have to watch you read the word. Do you want your kids praying? They've gotta see you praying. Do you want your kids treasuring Jesus above everything else in this world? Then you have to treasure Jesus above everything else in this world. I love these two Psalms because they really capture kind of where we are as a people today. Most of us know what it feels like to be a weary traveler, and most of us know what it feels like to build vain things with the wrong message. But the psalmist is inviting us to consider a different way, to not just cry with no purpose, but to cry with a purpose, to cry in the right direction, to start with gratitude that God is always faithful. And let that build into expectation that what he did before, he will do again right now. And that turns into joy, which then turns into participation. That's the pattern of 126 and 127, and I think it's really helpful for us today in the avenue of understanding how to get out of the desert season we're in, but also how we're supposed to build our homes, do our work, and raise our children. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.